I think many snakes probably see their owners as as mouse dispensers, but I think even snakes can get very used to you and handling you and can give you support and interact with you. Exotic pets are becoming quite common in the world. They don't take up much space, they don't eat much, and you don't have to take them for a walk every day. We catch up again with UK veterinarian Benjamin Kennedy, and we discuss exotics as a pet. The first half of the podcast, we discuss the husbandry of them, and we get a little bit more clinical in the second half, and we talk about the veterinary care of them. Are you a veterinarian dreaming about working down under in New Zealand? If so, I'd love to help you make that dream come true. Hi, I'm Julie South of Vetstaff. Vetstaff is New Zealand's only recruitment agency specialising in the Kiwi veterinary sector. We can help you find your dream job down under, from short-term locum assignments through to permanent employment and residency. Because we know God's own Aotearoa New Zealand like the back of our hands, we can match your career aspirations with a clinic that'll suit you best. Whether you're planning to work here for a few months or forever, if it's got anything to do with working in a vet clinic in New Zealand, we can help. Vetstaff.co.nz You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. like to welcome back again veterinarian Benjamin Kennedy from the UK. Benjamin, thanks very much for coming and joining us again. What we're going to talk about this time, and it actually follows on from the last episode that we recorded, which was on invertebrates, we're going to have a look at exotic animals now and what veterinarians can do for exotic animals. So I guess we start, Benjamin, what are exotic animals? So that is a real debate. In truth, the word exotic has lots of different meanings in lots of different countries. Broadly, there are three definitions. One definition is anything that's not native. But obviously, something that's that's native in the UK will be quite different from something that's native in, in New Zealand or Australia. So, you know, in, in the UK, we don't really have tortoises uh, that are native. We don't have exotic parrots to the same degree, so all of those animals are naturally very exotic. But in New Zealand, that may not be so much the case. Another another way of defining exotic animals is in a lot of countries, especially in Europe, uh, they have this definition which is a non-traditional companion animal, which basically means a companion animal that isn't a dog or cat, so a lizard or a parrot would be considered a non-traditional companion animal. But obviously that, that term has its problems itself because the, the biggest problem with that term is companion animal and traditional because some people, you know, they, ha- they keep 50 or 100 snakes or 500 tarantulas. Are they all a companion to the same degree a cat or dog is? And obviously there are lots of things which are sometimes called exotic animals, which are actually incredibly traditional. So ferrets and falcons are both very, they have traditions sometimes going back a thousand years. So they're not necessarily very new. The final definition of exotic is sometimes the biggest coverall one, which is basically anything that isn't a companion animal, i.e., small animal dog or cat not farmed in to to a, to a huge degree or 
not a not a horse so <laughs> that's not another definition of exotic which is sometimes used so it's a real real difficult one do they make good pets i mean <laughs> cats give you companionship well no, cat, cats live their own lives but sleep on your bed. Dogs give you companionship. Are you looking at the same sort of bond with exotics as you are with conventional companion animals? I would say it depends on how long your rope is and how, how you want to view it because I think lots of different species are included in this, this term. And they all are very different and I think the way we have bonds with them is very different. I think certainly that bond can be very comparable to a cat or dog if you're dealing with a parrot or even with a lizard or a snake. I think one of the things that makes them more complicated than cats and dogs is they often have much bigger and much more complex husbandry needs. As a dog will pretty much look after itself, I think if you're dealing with a a particular sort of lizard, especially if it's not endemic to your country, that's an animal that's going to need temperature control uv and a special diet and all sorts of other things so it depends on what you define as a good pet i think a lot of exotics are complicated to keep especially when you're dealing with parrots and primates i know that we're speaking very very broadly here and i'm purposefully not going into the the nitty-gritty of specific species but if you sort of take a general look at it do things like if you have got a a pet lizard or a pet tortoise, do they recognise you? Do do they know that you are the person that feeds them? Are they likely to come up to you for affection? Do they require affection? Do you know, on a whole, I'd say yes. I'd say yes. I think they do. I think, again, it it's all degrees it's all levels i you know i think many snakes probably see their owners as as mouse dispensers but i think even snakes uh, can get very used to you and handling you and can give you support and interact with you i think that interaction is quite unique to the species and the animal i think and i definitely think they're different from each other they've get a lot of of individual uh variation about how personable speech marks they are um, and I think certainly some of the more sophisticated and more sociable uh, exotics certainly do begin to interact with you. And I think a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. I think we talked about anthropomorphization in the invertebrate podcast. And I think the same is true even for dogs and cats and certainly is for exotics. Now, again, I'm not going to get particularly specific about location because we've got listeners throughout the world. But... I would imagine that in a number of countries you're going to require special licensing to keep certain species as pets. Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, anything that is venomous certainly has more complicated uh, licensing requirements. And anything that is exotic, i.e. not native, often has very complicated um licensing requirements certainly for australia and and new zealand because of the nature of the the wildlife populations in those countries i think keeping non-native animals is is complex um in truth it really varies differently from country to country so so the uk 
can sometimes be described as a bit of a wild, wild west because you can actually keep a remarkable number of things. So in the UK currently, you can keep marmosets with minimal licensing requirements. Now, thankfully, that's changing a bit. Certainly, there are lots of things which every country has restrictions on. So, for example, venomous snakes, uh, copperhead snakes, um, you know, black mambas, the sort of thing that if they bite you, you're, you're a little bit dead. But again, it's a difficult one because, for example, in Australia, uh, you have redbacks, latrodectus spiders. Can you really ask someone to get a special license for an animal they can pick up in their backyard and put in a pot? It's, it's, it's a challenge sometimes, depending on the country. Let's get a little bit hypothetical here, Benjamin. Little Jimmy goes to mum and said, Mum, I want a pet. I don't want a cat. I don't want a dog. They trot down to the pet shop and he sees a lizard or a frog or something. What kind of things generally do you have to think about as far as the husbandry that is going to be required and the difference between the husbandry for exotics compared with conventional pets? I think on the whole... Uh, the husbandry requirements for exotic animals, especially when you are not in the same place that the animal is from, are quite advanced and quite complex. And I think we're learning how complex they are over the past five to 20 years, because I think we have learned so much. So I, I think there are several things. I think one thing is a lot of these animals are incredibly good survivors where they will somehow survive pretty awful (laughs) or interesting husbandry. It's only when you get the husbandry right that they start to really thrive. So certainly, but certainly if you're dealing with a tropical species from the equator, you're going to need temperature. You're going to need to make sure that temperature is within a range which is compatible with the animal. You're also going to need to make sure that the humidity is correct, so regular either misting systems or humidity systems, you're going to make sure that you've got the right substrate, the right hides and and enough space. So one of the biggest problems we have is you put your little exotic animal in a tiny little box and and you wonder why it's not doing so well. I think a lot of these animals need a good light control. I think that's certainly true. And I think they need special light. So if you've got, if you imagine you've got a parrot that exists in a canopy of... The, the equator of, of a large jungle, you know, you, you, you're going to need large amounts of UV and you're going to need specialised UV uh, that has to be kept up. So, and actually that makes a big difference. It doesn't make, necessarily make a difference straight away because remember these animals will survive an awful lot. But actually, if, certainly if you want to keep an animal for a long time with minimal problems all of these things get more involved. I mean, the other thing, we always talk about husbandry and we talk about husbandry in terms of, you know, giving the animal, you know, what it needs physically, but we also have to think about the mental aspect of this as well. So parrots, and definitely to to, to the same extent, lizards, reptiles, amphibians, they all require things for them to have their normal behaviour. So parrots are actually best kept in flocks, in large aviaries, to be honest not necessarily by themselves and certainly not necessarily by themselves with minimal interaction with people again lizards have lots of things they need i think to to live a normal life so i think for snakes you can have controversial discussions about 
how big their their enclosures are but certainly they should have enough of an enclosure that they can stretch out but then i'm probably putting my foot in that for the snake owners in the audience so i think i think they are complicated i think the biggest thing that she can do is she can go jimmy i want you to go on the internet i want you to grab a book and i want you to learn exactly what you need i want you to find an exotic vet nearby so we know we've got a vet because that's the other difficult thing if you've got if you're 50, 100 miles from the nearest vet that will see, you know, Jimmy's lizard, then you're a bit scarpered, aren't you? So the biggest thing you can do is do your research and get some advice from somebody who's a bit more experienced. I put a post up on our Instagram account, which for those of you who want to find that, just search at Vet Podcast and have a look. But I asked if people had any questions and we got a couple in both of them relating to diet the first one i'll put to you is from it's actually another podcast called walk on the wild side vet podcast so that's actually well worth the listen to so there's a there's a wee shout out for you guys the question that they'll put to me is what are the most common nutrition related diseases that you see in exotic companion animals in some respects that's a difficult question to answer because I think there's a lot of nutritional disease in exotic animals. I think the classic one you often hear about is is hypocalcemia, i.e. metabolic bone disease. It's often so classic that I think many vets and many owners jump to metabolic bone disease to begin. So just to define what that is, that's when you, A, don't have enough UV light, which helps us absorb and deposit calcium and b we don't have enough calcium in our diets therefore we don't deposit calcium into our bones all all vertebrates and even to a lesser extent invertebrates have a hemostatic so i.e a balance in place to keep calcium and all sorts of things in the right place so they will start to get them from their stores for everything but in truth you know there, there are definitely problems with hypovitamosis a hypovitamosis d associated with calcium hypovitamosis uh, c so in guinea pigs guinea pigs can't metabolize vitamin c so if they don't have vitamin c in their diets they begin to develop scurvy and in truth you, you can also get nutritional disease which is you know more disease of being really fat or having way too much carbohydrate in your diet so often one of the the problems with parrots it certainly can be metabolic bone disease but it can also be gout or obesity or liver disease associated with a seed-based diet, which now seeds aren't bad by themselves, but they shouldn't be the only thing an animal eats. Seeds are very high in energy. So you'll often see parrots that, that don't have metabolic bone disease, they have liver disease because they've been eating fat and having lots of energy the whole time, way too much for them. So it's a very nuanced question. And that's the reason why I'm giving you a nuanced answer because it. And I guess the other thing to 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 remember is often exotic owners and exotic vets will suggest supplementation, and supplementation is great. It's a good thing, but it's not a replacement for the real thing. You can give animals calcium if you're not giving them the light, UV light. It's, it, it's almost pointless, and also it's supplementation is not a replacement for a good varied diet a parrot if you if you're giving parrot sunflower seeds it doesn't matter how much supplement you're giving that parrot that parrot's not going to get what it needs so it's it's a very nuanced question indeed i think it's probably one of the main things we get wrong with these animals 
So can I just drill down onto this metabolic bone disease? And you actually preempted another one of the questions that we've got. This is from Vanessa Del Falco, who again came to us through Instagram and she's asking specifically about metabolic bone disease. So what she's asking, is it possible to reverse or improve the effects of MBD with proper diet and husbandry? And she's talking about it must be her juvenile leopard gecko. And would a special diet or care be required to do so? Hello, Vanessa. Uh, first of all, leopard geckos are wonderful little animals. I would say mostly yes, but with a few caveats. So do you know what? One of the most often presentations of metabolic bone disease I have is in a rescuer where somebody has inherited or acquired a leopard gecko that's been given given to them or passed on to them by somebody who's lost interest and perhaps that person didn't give that leopard gecko the perfect husbandry but the leopard gecko has kept going that person's obviously corrected all the husbandry but we'll still see the after effects of the way it was kept a few years ago it's the same for bearded dragons as well and other lizards and even birds as well so i think you can correct and improve things by correcting husbandry and diet and and doing things correctly i think that's 100 percent true if someone was to come in with to me and it was little jimmy who hadn't done his research one of the first things i'd recommend to jimmy beyond simple short-term treatment is let's deal with the husbandry let's get the husbandry perfect because the sooner you deal with the husbandry the better the animal will be but i think there are after effects for a long time afterwards so i think you've got to be managing your expectations and i think you know the thing i often say is it often takes a while for these these husbandry problems to present themselves it also takes a while for them to to be resolved or improved so often it takes a long time to get that animal to where it needs to be again so i hope that helps vanessa <laughs> can can we just finish off the nutrition here benjamin with normal companion animals with cats and dogs there is this AFCO accreditation which we've talked about previously is there an equivalent food qualification or certification for exotic food how do people know that what they are feeding is actually what the animal needs or do you just google it I think you probably more just google it grab a book talk to a vet or ask someone experienced there may well be in truth because i know certainly for rabbits and guinea pigs there are formulated diets and there are for parrots as well and i know that you know you have things like tortoise pellets and that sort of thing so there may well be some standards there but what i would say is i think what we know about these animals is so much less than what we know about cats and dogs for for a lot of these animals we know more about them in captivity than we do in the wild and a lot of when they were initially brought into whatever hobby they came into, you know, a lot of people guessed essentially what their diets were and those that survived, survived. I know that sounds very brutal. So I think our understanding of what their nutritional needs are is still growing. And I think we're still learning what they need. So I think the best thing you can do is go online, do research and be as informed as you can be and be sceptical of what you're reading, of course, you know, even if it's coming from a vet, be a little bit sceptical, that's not a problem. But there's not really the same conventional approach. Like you don't have dog food for, for bearded dragons and, and lots of exotics won't eat a normal food. I mean, 
bearded dragons when they're younger eat lots of insects, leopard geckos or insectivorous. So they don't have food in the same way that dogs and cats do. We're just going to take a short break here to help pay the rent. We'll be back soon with Benjamin. We will be talking about the veterinary care of exotic pets. The Vet Podcast has no sponsorship, but as is the way of the world, it still costs money to produce, what with the hosting site, interviewing platforms and software subscriptions. Not to mention the recording equipment required. So if you enjoy the podcasts, why not show it in a small way and buy me a coffee? If you are so inclined, go to buymeacoffee.com slash vetpodcasts or to our social media bio site. Now back to the podcast. And we're back. So, Benjamin, we're going to switch a little bit now to more of the roots of the vet podcast where we're going to be talking about the veterinary care and treatment of animals, in this case, exotic animals. So the first thing I suppose is how do you know that your exotic animal is sick? Uh, The same way you would know any animal, any other animal is sick. I think you know your animal when it's normal. So when it's not so normal, you've got a semblance there's something off. Or at least at least if it's not doing something you expect it to. I think, do you know what? These guys are a bit easier than invertebrates because they're more similar to dogs and cats than tarantulas are. So in some respects, you know, anorexia, with some exceptions, being more lethargic, being off colour, some animals become actually ecteric. So I've so for the clients in the audience, that's when you go yellow when you have liver disease. You start drinking more, you start urinating more. You know, a, a small rodent with a kidney problem will be presenting the same way that a cat or dog would. So there's a lot more familiar there than we give ourselves credit for. So you know, I think I think we do the same things as vets with vertebrates that we do with cats and dogs it's really the same it's a variation of the same really okay vet vet hat on now for the veterinarians that are listening to this how do they go about examining an, an exotic i mean cats and dogs are and horses and sheep and pigs are relatively easy reptiles run at different temperatures whatever the environment is so obviously you've got that one struck off unless they're completely hyperthermic. How do you examine them? So I think you examine them in the same way that you would a cat or dog with some pretty key differences. So I think reptiles, unless you've got a very big reptile, you're not going to have a hope of getting that that heart rate with a a stethoscope. You can do it with larger monitor lizards and savannah lizards. You know, the, the larger lizards, you certainly can. I've done it. Uh, but you, you you ideally need a Doppler to hand. Most veterinary practices will hope you know lots of veterinary practices will have it for your anaesthesia monitoring. Grab the Doppler, put it over where the heart will be, and you're more likely to get a nice heart rate. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is lots of these animals get stressed very quickly. So I think, and it's if it's coming to you, it's probably quite sick because I think they do a lot of them do mask their clinical signs birds especially mask their clinical signs very effectively so I think when you're handling birds you know get some examination experience get some advice as to how to handle them correctly number one 
Uh, and number two, always be cognizant of how much handling you're doing. Because, you know, the, the classic situation is you have little Jimmy who brings in his little budgie. Budgie is very, very sick. And I think you need to mention to Jimmy that, you know, that his little budgie could get very stressed because, you know, these animals can sometimes, when they're being handled by the vet, will sometimes go into shock and die. It's very rare, uh, especially if you're handling them well, but it's very important to have that in your head because I think if an animal starts to put its head back and exhibit those signs of, of, of shock and stress, you've got to just stop handling. So you've got to have that in place. So obviously different exotics are different. So lizards, that's not going to happen to the same degree. But I do, I do think it's important to just be experienced with that handling aspect but pretty much the same you know you're feeling condition you're feeling the abdomen you're looking at the head you're looking at the mucous membranes you're listening to the heart you're looking at the respiration you're looking for obvious trauma it's it's the same head to toe or you know tail to head examination that you would do with your cat and dog it's just with a little bit of flavor thrown in Something which I would imagine would be an absolute minefield will be the medication, the drugs that you're giving them as far as the the dose rates that you're giving. Are you giving it, you know, the, the standard milligram per kilogram? I'd imagine you have dosage differences. Are there potential toxicities? If you've got animals which are hibernating or which have got a really slow metabolic rate how do you know how much of drugs of the drug to give and if you have got animals which have got varying metabolic rates do you have to change the dose of the drug that you're giving them you definitely do again this is one of those things where every species is a little bit different so if you're dealing with something a bit unfamiliar it can be quite upsetting to the the internal feng shui i think a formulary is your friend uh the bsava formulary for exotics i think edited by joe headley uh but the classic one you will have is is carpenter's formulary which is it really is a fantastic book um it's one of your essentials i would say because it not only has the basics of of different sorts of medications which can be used in different species but also it has parameters for blood values and and clinical exam which i find helpful to have to hand in truth i think it's again go back to uh, the invertebrate podcast we did together i think it's really important to know that whatever you're using that you know what it does how it does it and how it's metabolized and how it's distributed around the body you have to know your drug well so you know, grab grab Wikipedia, grab your textbook, find out what the drug you're thinking of using does, and then really establish from a, a primary natural biology, natural physiology point of view. Does that will that work? But there, you know, there, de- there definitely are big big differences. Some animals metabolize these drugs a lot quicker. Classic example: rabbits, guinea pigs metabolize. Meloxicam, i.e. Metacam, i.e. non-steroidals, gosh, five, five times, ten times quicker than than cats or dogs. So you're giving your 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 you know Jimmy's rabbit uh, Metacam, and it's it's ten times the dog dose, and he's looking at it with wide eyes. That's normal. Same is true for birds in for antibiotics. So amoxiclav, great antibiotic to use in in avian species. Dose rate is 125 mg per kg. 
which compared to a dog or cat is is 12.5 mg per kg in a dog or cat. So it's 10 times the dose. So you're giving this poor little chicken a 20 kilo dose of a dog dog antibiotic. So it, I think do your research, know what the drug is doing, have a good formulary to hand or have an exotic vet you can poke in the eye and ask for some advice. I think something else to think about too, Benjamin, and it all depends on which country you're living in, but for, for the Kiwi vets that are listening to, to us here, very, very few of these drugs are actually licensed for use in these exotic species. So you've got this whole discretionary use thing comes in here as well. So you have to make sure that you've explained to the owner of the animal that you are using a drug which is off-label and give them the possible side effects and get them to sign the paper off. So I think for, for the veterinarians, just, just have a look at what the registration for the drugs are and what you have to do with them. So the next step with the administration of the drugs is how do you give them? Can, can you give an injection to a snake? Can you give an injection to a, a lizard? Can you give them fluids? How do you give a, how do you give a pill to a snake? I think exactly the same way that you would to a cat or dog. <laughs> it's becoming my mantra for life, isn't it, Brian? I think for snakes in particular, you've picked a very good example. I think you can give them injections in the same way that you can cats and dogs. There Again, there are a few differences. So they have a slightly different circulatory anatomy, reptiles in general, less so birds and other other animals wherein you've got to be considerate of where you're injecting. You should ideally in a snake or or lizard or tortoise actually inject into the front end of the animal rather than the back end because you you then have issues with the renal system because these drugs go basically if you give it into the back leg it's not as predictable either it's instantly excreted through the renal system or it damages the renal system so certainly if you're using something like a non-steroidal that can be quite serious i think on the whole these animals um i would say more challenging to give oral medications too but it's certainly doable bit of dragon lizard you can get that mouth open you can you can get something down that mouth if you need to it will be no more complicated than a frustrated cat i think a lot of these animals i i do give courses of injections to clients where i i i talk clients through giving injections in the same way you would perhaps diabetic diabetic medications to a, a diabetic cat or dog and that can work well. So I think they are a bit more nitty gritty. But again, I think we, we often see limitations as vets and clients where the limitations are not actually there. It just takes a bit of creative thinking. And certainly that's my experience with, with exotic animals. I think it, it just requires creative thinking. So fluids can be given as well. I would say that in some reptiles, you sometimes give intrasolomic fluids. So fluids direct, directly into the abdomen which is a bit of a different from cats or dogs. But again, really, it's a really important part of, of treating them uh, in truth. So it's certainly, certainly doable. So moving on from the giving the medication, I guess surgery. I mean, as, as veterinarians, we all do surgery on rabbits and guinea pigs and birds. There must be differences when you're looking at some of these, particularly the amphibians and the reptiles I guess with their sort of handbaggy scaly kind of skin can, can you do surgery and how, how do you how do you stitch up an animal which has got those Louis Vuitton handbaggy skins on them so I think 
main anatomical difference from an anaesthetic point of view, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, is they don't have a diaphragm. So you need either a ventilator or a very kind, wonderful nurse that will ventilate your animal for you. I think they heal much more slowly. I think there are debates as to whether you need a exverting pattern. I need to find out exactly how you say it or a simple continuous pattern. I think you definitely can do the same sorts of surgeries, unlike invertebrates where it's a lot more complicated, or even fish. I think for, well, even though fish are also a exotic animal, I think the, the capacity to do surgery is definitely there. I think, you know, you could need good anaesthesia, which we'll talk about. But I think, essentially, the anatomy is more similar than we give it credit for. I think some of these animals have a different reproductive anatomy and a different sort of circuitry anatomy in terms of their hearts. But actually, you know, a lot of, you know, they have a spleen, they have a liver, they have the same sorts of things there. They have guts, which you can deal with in the same way you would cats and dogs. I think a lot of it's the variations from the normal. So actually, if you can do a spay in a cat or dog, it's different, but it's not so difficult in a lizard. Tortoises, for instance, you're dealing with a big old shell. That's probably the complicated thing when you're considering spaying them. Though you can spay a lot of these animals or do a lot of these animals with endoscopy. So if you've got a rigid scope in your practice or if you're a client that has a practice that has a rigid scope, actually what you can do with exotics is suddenly opened up immeasurably because you can actually do salomic evaluation, taking biopsies, you know, looking into crops and cloacas and other things. So it's why I love my my, my rigid scope very dearly. Well, you've mentioned that, Benjamin, anaesthetics. I would be guessing that you are using mainly inhalation anaesthetics, gas anaesthetics, and particularly in the reptiles and the amphibians. Yes, I I think it's it's probably not as much of a definite requirement as we sometimes think it is because I certainly have discussed things with some more tropical more exotic rescues in other countries where they they have only really access to injectable anesthetics and they certainly are able to do procedures with just air just medical air and that sort of thing so I don't think it's it's an absolute necessity I think Anesthesia, you know what, for the vets in the audience, it's probably the thing that causes the most uh, worry, I would say. It's probably one of the main calls I get for advice. You know, people find out I do exotics, they send me a WhatsApp, they're a friend of mine, and they go, Benjamin, how do I, you know, anesthetize a goose or a snake or whatever? And I think if I had to give advice... It would be know your protocol, often thinking about what you do know. I think a lot of these animals can be, can, you know, they, they have very familiar anaesthetic protocols. Certainly if you begin to learn them, certainly if you've got some exposure to farm animal work or, or more oldie school work, I think, you know, lots of these animals are put down with variations of ketamine. Lots of these animals are put down with variations of benzodiazepines, so that's diazepam, midazolam, uh, the good old sleepy drugs for the clients in the audience, uh, and opioids. So uh, there are lots of variations of these protocols. I think if you're using something sensible and something that's been reported before, I think having a very, very good nurse to hand and having a nurse that you've given chocolate to, that you've got on side, is really important with these animals. I think it's it's usually the biggest limiting factor in a practice. 
It's not actually necessarily the vets, I would say. I think it's sometimes your nursing team and your team overall, because I think these animals, from an anaesthetic point of view, are not fun. They require more monitoring. They require more fundamental monitoring. So in cats and dogs, we have a pulse ox. Lots of places have pulse oxes in all sorts of countries. We have, you know, we have Dopplers. We have, we have blood pressure. We, you know, we have ECG. Perhaps, perhaps we could have a discussion about whether we concentrate too much on what the little blinking tools are telling us, rather than what the animal is telling us. But do you know what? I think when you're looking at an animal that you've not done much with, it's it's a challenge. So. From an anaesthesia point of view, I think actually talking your nurse through it and having a good plan. But really, I think it's just going back to your fundamentals and having a protocol that makes sense and having a plan and having everything set up. So, again, we could have long discussions about intubation in different species, but it's the same principles. The next question is, is probably going to be a really simple yes, no. I'm guessing the answer is yes. Do they feel pain? Do do reptiles and um, amphibians feel pain? Again, debate, I would say, real big debate. I would say yes. I'm certainly more convinced of pain than I am in invertebrates, and I'm already convinced of it in invertebrates. But again, you have this arose by, by any other name, would it smell as sweet sort of question, because we, we have a very human-centric view of pain, and I'm... I probably talked about this too much in a past podcast, and I think it's it's especially true for these animals as well. So I think we could have long discussions about uh, whether they feel the same level of of discomfort, suffering if they if they're slightly cooler, or uh, we can have discussions about whether they feel pain in the same way that 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 humans do, or whether they feel their own form of pain. You've got to bear in mind that a lot of these animals, certainly little lizards, will autotomize their tails. Is that painful? Certainly the amphibians do the same thing. I mean, amphibians can completely regenerate some of their limbs. So I think I think it's a... I would say yes, because I think I want evidence they don't feel pain rather than evidence that they do. I think argument by analogy is a beautiful thing and we should love it. So I would say yes, but you know what? There's questions there. I think there's questions about how they feel pain. And I think it's important we ask ourselves those questions because there's more to pain relief than just drugs. And sometimes understanding some of the the mechanics of pain allows us to better treat it. We'll just move on then in the same sort of realm, euthanasia. Things like birds and the, the little rodents and things. It's, it's all pretty mainstream. What about if you have a snake that is bored and that has to be euthanized, or if you if you've got a a, a a reptile, if you've got a lizard or something, how do you go about that? Actually, there are lots of variations of the same. I think people just don't see the variations of the same. You know, a lot of reptiles will have a tail vein that you can hit. You know, tortoises certainly have jugulars. Uh, I've I've hit cephalics before in lizards. You also have your sort of belly vein. I'm trying to remember the name of it off the top of my head. I'm I'm drawing a blank. But there are there are lots of veins there you can hit IV. I think the biggest bit of advice I would say is make it easy for yourself if you can. There's nothing wrong with gassing down the animal or giving the animal a sedation. To make it easy for you, uh, you can certainly hit heart in a lot of these animals. I mean, the other adage for life is... Certainly, if you're a vet, 
is there's never a problem of using too much uh, in truth. And I think for these species, you know, use a bit more than you need to. I, I will usually use double or three times the amount of the anaesthetic drug because it's an anaesthetic drug we use to euthanize uh, pento uh, barbiturates than I need. And actually that, that tends to work well for me. The other thing I'd say from euthanasia of lizards, I mean, we can have long discussions about uh, rodents and uh, birds as well, because I think there are variations from the classic techniques in those animals, but use a Doppler, just confirm that the animal is gone. The other thing you can do, poor man's technique, as I like to call it, is a bit of paper, keep that animal at operating temperature, put that animal on that paper, draw a line around it, if it's that same place in 24 hours... If you're not in a position where you have a Doppler or you're in a position where you're in a, a you know, another country which doesn't quite have these advanced tools to hand, that's another thing you can use. I know it sounds very juvenile. Uh, the other thing I would say, big mistake that a lot of vets make with these animals is they call them down after they've given the, the euthanasia drug. And this is when you get the uh, the, the problems with, you know, the, the the zombie tortoise that comes back to life, which is the terrifying thing. I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of these vets get very worried about these animals. I think main thing is, as you said earlier, these animals metabolise things at different temperatures. So I would say for at least half an hour afterwards, keep that animal at operating temperature, i.e. the temperature it would be at, in the wild. Benjamin, we'll wrap it up here. Again, thank you very, very much for taking the time to have a talk to us. Now, if people want to find more information, be it veterinarian or exotic owner, where do they go? So I think find your local exotic vet. I know they exist in New Zealand and certainly if they're anything like me, they will be rearing for someone to help them with the exotic caseload wherever because it's it's very difficult to be the exotic vet of New Zealand, I imagine. I'm a member of a society called the British Veterinary Zoological Society, of which I'm a council member. I help with their conference and website. And I, I would actually recommend that even for New Zealand vets, because we have some quite close ties to New Zealand and Australia, because I know a lot of our vets work over there and a lot of your vets will come and work over here. So I know that society would be more than welcoming to any uh, New Zealand vets or Australian vets, or pretty much any international vet that would want to learn more about exotic animals. And we have quite a vibrant exotic keeping community in this country. I think your local zoological collection can usually put you in the right direction. And again, I think there are a few really good textbooks to have. I think Maida's Reptile Medicine is a good one. I think a lot of the BSAVA manuals are fabulous for this sort of thing. You know, mostly it's LSQ Exotic Vet, but I hope that's a good starting point for a lot of the uh, budding exotic vets in the audience. Benjamin, thanks very, very much for your time. Pleasure, thank you. And that's it for another episode of the Vet Podcast. All of our links are in one place at beacons.ai slash vetpodcast. That is B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash vetpodcast. And while you're there, don't forget to buy us a coffee. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon.